Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Acer for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is John Nickton, and uh, my co-host, Dan, is out for the time being, but he'll be joining us on our next episode. Uh, we're actually recording this just in January, but you'll very likely hear it a little later. So I want to wish you a happy New Year's. It might feel a little strange when you listen to it in March, but at least we said it. I'm very excited uh, to have two guests actually uh from nutcase oliver page who i've known for quite a long time and he's been wonderful and supported me with different projects in schools and we've also just kept in touch and leo who i had the pleasure of meeting uh, a few years ago in rome who actually recommended a phenomenal restaurant uh thank you all about the cow and there's a little story that I never told you, Leo. I collect these Swiss cows. So in Switzerland, cows, of course, are a big part of our right. culture. And there was this whole campaign for artists, for charity, to design cows. So they would paint them in different colors. And then you would, they would be unique cows based on that artist's colors. And, <laughs> and when I went into the restaurant, he had a whole line of them. And of course, once we connected, we were best friends and uh, <laughs> the grappa came out and it was a wonderful evening. But thank you for that recommendation. And Leo I've actually came it. in and talked to uh, the principal training center where I have the privilege of teaching a uh, leadership course in technology. And Oliver and Leo have always been very generous in sharing and engaging and supporting students in schools. And it's so nice. I was just telling Oliver, I've been enjoying all the LinkedIn videos because they've been really busy and we get to hear about that uh, in a few minutes. But first of all, I'm going to turn it over to Oliver to kind of just tell our audience who you are, a little bit about your story, and then over to Leo. Sure. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. And uh, like you well said, you know, the journey we've been on here at Nutcase and as young entrepreneurs has been a wild one started about uh, 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago now, when I was in high school at the uh, international, I was at St. Stephen's School, St. Stephen's School in Rome. Um, and I also attended Ambrit in Rome, which are two uh, phenomenal international schools that I was very lucky to attend. And, um, you know, just kind of sharing the nutcase story and my background, you know, I was uh, lucky enough to have two incredible parents who were very uh, entrepreneurial themselves. They were both Americans that moved to Italy when they were 30 and fell in love with the country. And they've been in Italy for about 33 years now. So I grew up in a very diverse American Italian culture. I went to these great international schools that, you know, played an enormous part in my uh, formation as a young person and as a student. Um, I was never that academic, though, to be perfectly honest. I, you know, pulled off some decent grades here and there. My uh, math and sciences were always challenging, but um, ultimately found a passion for entrepreneurship. And that was largely due to my mother, who was starting uh, a company when I was a teenager. And uh, I got inspired by what she was doing with these projects and ultimately found my path towards um, starting a business 
that was uh, essentially creating a, a case. I, d I designed and invented a, a unique iPad case back in 2011 when the iPad 1 had just been released. And um, the idea was for a, a case that had a hand strap that was durable, that eliminated the risk of the iPad falling, which is one of the biggest pain points that you had for iPads. And you still kind of do, to be honest. Um, and so, you know, fast forwarding, I designed a product. I found a supplier in China, you know, got a small investment from my parents, a couple hundred bucks to design the product and do a small production run. And um, ultimately secured our first big customer. Sorry, our first big customer ended up being Ambrit, my international school in Rome. And that kind of just happened kind of randomly. It wasn't like part of our strategy at all, but I had told them that I was working on this project and they said, oh, we just bought a hundred iPads for our middle schoolers. Why don't you got, why don't you, the alumni student sell us the cases? And I was like, that's a great idea. And so um, <laughs> it kind of felt, we kind of fell into the education market uh, in, in kind of that kind of random way. And uh, yeah, fast forwarding over the years, we've built uh, a small business that's been growing year on year and over the past couple of years, quite exponentially. Um, I've lived in uh, Italy. I spent 20 years in Italy. I spent a year in the UK for college. Um, I went to Lancaster University to study entrepreneurship and management, which was a unique experience. You know, I can't say I loved it, but I definitely am grateful for having had the chance to go there and, uh, and study. I, I met some really great people and the people I met there helped me on my path to my next phase, which was in Silicon Valley, where I attended a entrepreneurship boot camp school, kind of an alternative uh, program called Draper University. And uh, that was in the summer of 2013, where I uh, experienced, uh, you know, it was my first time experiencing Silicon Valley culture, working in technology, being surrounded by some of the brightest people I've ever met and probably will ever meet. Um, and ultimately started a technology company in Silicon Valley that got financed by Timothy Draper, a very uh, well-known uh, venture capitalist, and then um, was in the Bay Area for a couple of years. And I moved back to Italy uh, and started another company called Scuterino, which is kind of like Uber, but on motorcycles and Vespas, and worked on that project for several years in Italy. All the while, Nutcase, my original business, had been actually taken over by my father and was run as like a very legitimate mom and pop business as my mother and father literally ran it, you know, from their home and focused uh, primarily on selling iPad cases to international schools in Europe. Um, and then we um, ultimately, uh, Leo, my first cousin got involved and he'll, you know, he'll chime in in a moment and share his story. But I've been a serial entrepreneur my whole life. It's my passion. It's my obsession, you know, for good. For better or worse, it is my passion and obsession. And, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to have, uh, you know, be able to work with great people. We've um, recently grown the company substantially. We have an amazing team beneath us now that's building this dream company with Leo and I. And, yeah, I'm just crazy obsessed entrepreneur. And that's 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 my story in a nutshell. 
Um, and I remember you, we, your dad, I met him multiple times. I was at the International School of Prague and we bought uh, iPad cases and then laptop cases. Mm -hmm. And today we were just talking again at the International School of Luxembourg. We're buying more iPads and that case came up. So Good. that's been a nice Glad to hear it. And I know also, Oliver, you came and worked with some of our own uh, grade nine and 10 kids that were looking at entrepreneurship. Absolutely. And that was very powerful for them to kind of hear your passion and story. Leo, tell us your little story or big story. Sure, sure. definitely. Um, a little different to Oliver. My mother is American. My father's English. But I grew up in Australia for the first uh, 18 years of my life with brief stints in Hong Kong and France along the way. My father was an academic and more than being an academic was obsessed and loved to travel. And so I was lucky enough to grow up with two parents that fostered a huge love of travel for me. So we took numerous trips around Southeast Asia, Europe, the whole time I was growing up. And so when I finished high school, I took sort of an Australian tradition, which is known as a gap year before starting university, where I worked odd jobs, and then uh, moved to London, worked as a cleaner, worked behind bars, worked construction for one exceptionally poor day before I gave that up relatively quickly. Then was traveling around North Africa before I got the chance to volunteer in Southeast Asia, where I just started teaching English. And really fell in love with Southeast Asia and fell in love with teaching English. And I thought that was going to be my big passion in life. I went back to Australia to do university, but it never really caught me the same way that teaching and travel did. And so I went back to Thailand and taught properly for a year. I got the certification. Then I was in Cambodia, then in Laos for a while after that. But the whole time I was staying close with Oliver while he was on these different entrepreneurial adventures. And it really fostered me the idea to try and try something myself. So during a time when I was back in Australia, I um, was working in the wine industry for a brief period of time. And there was a type of wine called a natural wine that had become very popular in Australia which is pretty much a wine where they do very little to it. You drink it, it doesn't age very well, but they were very popular, it was very cool. And so with a buddy of mine, we came up with the, now not the best idea, but at the time we thought it was genius idea to import wine from Georgia. So the, the, the country rather, not the state, where we thought we have this great idea. They make only natural wine in Georgia. They've been making it the same way for 6,000 years and it's very cheap. So we can buy a bottle of wine in Georgia, ship it to Australia. We have great networks in distribution and in retail in Australia, sell it and you know, retire early. Now, unfortunately, neither of us had really looked at the map and looked at the logistics behind transporting something that has to be temperature controlled from rural Georgia to an island on the other side of the world. And our business plan had a, a few flaws when it came to the approximate cost to ship a bottle of wine versus what the actual cost would be. But nonetheless, we had a great meeting with the Georgian ambassador in Australia. We had good connections. They were very interested. But also Australia made, made it quite difficult to import uh, alcohol into the country. And by, I think we applied on the 7th of January and they said, we've already given away all the licenses for the year. So we ended up with a pallet of wine. It took about nine months to get there. And I think my buddy still has a few in his garage up for grabs, but never really got that off over the ground. But at the time, this was at the end of 2016, and Nutcase was really starting to pick up steam. You know, technology and education in the US had really picked up a few years before that. And in Europe, it was really starting to pick up there. 
So I had some experience in sales and international business and knew the education industry well, relatively well from working around Southeast Asia. And so I had the opportunity to join our Oliver and Ross in that case. And originally when I joined, my purview was just to kind of pick up our international school sales. So we started selling in Europe. We expanded to the Middle East in early 2017. And then we also started picking up resellers and distributors and really trying to build the business pretty seriously. We raised money from an investor in early 17. Oliver moved to the United States mid 17 to open our US branch. We opened the US company and we've kind of been all systems go from now, just diversifying our product line, getting into both Chromebooks and iPads, learning how to hire and scale out a team, picking up warehousing, more advanced supply chain, multiple contract manufacturers. And it's really been a, a wonderful adventure for us. You know, it's pretty cool as well. I was reflecting with Oliver that at the start of 2020, we had two employees in the United States and it was myself and Oliver. And now we have 10 going on 11. And so we've kind of gone as well, even from early 2021 when there were five, where we would organize quarterly offsites and we could rent a three bedroom Airbnb and fit everyone in. And now it's sort of getting much bigger and more spacious, but it's terrific. It's been a fun ride and we're kind of all systems go for our target this year, 22. And then we have a pretty big goal we're trying to get to in the next five years as well. Nice. So when you guys were doing it uh, with your dad and mom, Oliver, and then Leo came on board, what was it? Why were you not scaling up before? Was, or, or was it just the market? I'm just curious because suddenly it seems 2020 and of course COVID hit then. Is it, is it a COVID-induced success or was it more just your disposition and mindset where you guys were uh, to kind of say, okay, now we're going to blow this up at a larger scale? Um, so I kind of see this, I like to say this has kind of been like a 10-year overnight success where <laughs> – it's taken us since 2011, 12, I mean, 2012, when this thing just started between 2012 and 2020, those eight years, we've been preparing for the opportunity to explode. Right. And it's taken us a lot of blood, sweat and tears a lot of slow burning in order to be in the right place at the right time to harness the momentum that took place when COVID hit. And had we not gone through those very slow burning years of just being a small family business, you know, scraping by, you know, reinvesting capital that we earn into the inventory, into the product, into our small lean team in Europe at the time, we wouldn't have been able to be ready for the tornado that took place when COVID hit for in our industry. And, you know, I think that things would look perhaps quite differently right now had COVID never happened. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were ready for it and we, um, we were able to harness the opportunity and really launch ourselves into another dimension of, of, uh, of, of success because of, 
are eight years of preparation. And well, I think just yeah, to expand I, on yeah, that, Ollie, exactly. yeah, that in, I think as well, like you mentioned that it was uh, being run as sort of a lifestyle business up until right. the end of 2016. All right. When 2017 rolled around, we took an investor on in the business. We raised money to buy more inventory. We hired myself and two other people as well. Uh, we tripled our sales from 2016 to 2017. We tripled our sales again from 17 to 18. And I, and we doubled sales into 19. And then in 2020, we doubled sales again. So I think while COVID's been great for our business, we were on a pretty aggressive trajectory prior to it as well. That's true. And I think the coolest thing we saw with COVID with regards to ed tech, obviously, barring a global pandemic, is just the dramatic speed in which school districts went one-to-one. From previously pre-COVID, it was at about 13 million devices deployed in K-12 in the United States. Then it was going to be five to seven years people were projecting before every student had a device. But 2020 rolled around, the CARES Act funding, the CARES Act funding too, ECF funding. And I'm just talking about in the United States, the rest of the world had different government incentive programs. But effectively, the, the total addressable market tripled within three months. And that was really the most exciting part of our business. Correct. That so many students that we thought we wouldn't be able to sell a case for their device until 2025 immediately got them straight away. Yeah. And that's I think that's what supported the growth. One thing that you mentioned, and I think there's kind of this misconception or there's the myth of the entrepreneur is that you come up with an idea and overnight you're a billionaire. And there is this kind of narrative that people kind of almost glorify the entrepreneur. And and I think one thing that I'm hearing that I think and having read a lot about this is that it can take some time. And the thing that you said was you were prepared when it was the right time. And the timing was just, so you were kind of getting yourself ready. You said you were a mom and pop shop, blood, sweat and tears, and you were kind of reinvesting, but you were obviously onto something and somehow suddenly the COVID pandemic came and you were sitting at the start line ready. And I think so often people don't realize a lot of startups and entrepreneurs and companies have had that journey and people just remember when they become successful, but they don't know the preamble uh, or all the time that it takes. And that timing and being in the right place at the right time sounds like that was the clincher for you, but you would have continued working as you were and gradually growing but somehow timing, maybe when you started, it was not the right time, but it was, there was enough coming in to keep you going. What do you guys, I mean, does that resonate? Yeah. And I think the other thing is that we're happy to take advantage of luck. You know, we've been working hard, waiting for a lucky break. And it just so happened for us at the start of 2020, we decided that the U.S. was a market we wanted to go into. We pre-shipped a lot of stock to the United States ahead of time. And, you know, we got lucky. It was a great, great time for us and it really supported the growth. But we've been waiting for 10 years. COVID comes, you know, this, this COVID thing suddenly shows up. Were you straight away thinking, hmm, that's interesting, online learning? Or was there indicators ahead of time? Or was it just suddenly you, suddenly people were calling you up and saying, well, listen, my school district has to buy 500 Chromebooks. Can you help me? What was, how did, you know, how did you sense this was maybe coming? Or was it just overnight something you're like, oh my God, 
this has happened. We can engage. So I don't think it was, unfortunately, it wasn't overnight at all. We had absolutely no business for 10 weeks between sort of the end of February until almost the end of April, where schools and everything was, it was just, no one was even talking about tech. People didn't know how long this was going to last. It took a while for the dust to settle where it was clear it was going to be long-term distance learning. We were actually, I mean, we, we thought we were, we were very concerned. Yeah, we were very, very concerned. We thought we were screwed for a while. And uh, yeah, we, I, I, we thought we were toast. We thought we were, you know, we thought we were in a really difficult situation because business dried up overnight. And uh, when you say dried up, Oliver, like there were no sales. Right. There were no sales, you know. No and you had all this salary. And yeah. Um, yeah, we thought there were no sales. We cut our salaries down. We were, we kind of went into kind of like an emergency hibernation mode. Um, Leo and I, believe it or not, had been, we had strategically chosen to get locked down in Puerto Rico at the time. So we were both by ourselves in this little house on the beach in the middle of nowhere in Puerto Rico. And we were just like, all right, maybe, maybe this will be the first time we get a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> a couple months since nothing's going on. And uh, that didn't happen. Because we actually, through one of my people in my, somehow I caught wind of the um, the face mask industry that had kind of exploded overnight. And so we actually pivoted our business within like 10 days from being a case company to being a face mask provider to healthcare wow. organizations across Europe and the United States. And thanks to having once again been working in China for eight, you know, over eight, you know, about ten years now, we had relationships with reliable suppliers who could provide us with quality face mask and uh, medical PPE, you know, materials. And so we uh, we just kind of put the entire case business on standby for about two months and focused on trying to keep the lights on by selling face masks to people that needed help with, with, with getting access to that supply. And, um, and were you selling them? When did it work? It worked. It worked. Definitely. You know, you know, it wasn't one of these like, you know, get rich quick schemes where we just cashed out, which kind of, you probably heard a few of those stories in the news, <laughs> but you don't hear, and this kind of go answers your other question, which is you only hear about the people that made it in the news. Yeah. You don't hear about, the 99.9% .9 of the other people who never made it. And that's why it seems glorified. And that's why it seems like everyone can just do it and become successful overnight. It was, and, it was um, enormously stressful as well. It's one thing we'd gone from delivering iPad cases to schools where you're always trying to deliver on time, but delays do happen. Trying to deliver face masks to a hospital and trying to connect the dots and do everything like that is a level of stress that was, I think, you know, far more than I think we originally thought it would be. It all seemed so easy. We knew someone that made face masks in China that were good quality. We had a whole network of people, put them on a plane, easy peasy, sip pina coladas on the beach. And instead, it was quality issues, compliance issues, regulatory issues, getting them certified, getting them recertified, import issues, lack of passenger travel and planes, pricing changes, you know, we made enough to keep the lights on, but it definitely, 
was um, it was my hairline looked are... a lot better before we got into PPE. That's for sure. <laughs> so you guys are doing the face masks. You're in Puerto Rico, and, and it's challenging, but you're keeping the lights on. And then suddenly, how does this whole explosion of, you know, so suddenly schools have to go virtual. They realize they don't have Chromebooks. So then, you know, different school districts, like we need to bring Chromebooks because our kids can't do online learning because they don't have laptops at home. Uh, how did, did that happen pretty quickly? Or was it a gradual trickle that suddenly you were like, ooh, there's something going on here. We need to get onto this. Yeah, it was definitely a very fast snowball effect, I would say, where we got an order and we got another and then there was a, you know, phones are ringing off the hook and it just became who has stock in America. And if you have stock in America, it could be a pink Chromebook case with a Barbie logo or it could be anything. We want it because we need to send these devices home with kids now. So it was really kind of like this weird dynamic in the market where they didn't really care what kind of case you had. As long as it was a case and it was in stock, we would buy it. They would buy it. And so it became this kind of frenzy where we were winning deals left and right just because we had stock on the ground. And we won our first, I think we hit our first $100,000 deal last year, which was just lightning in the bottle. We had stock. They called us and we closed a hundred thousand dollar deal in like three days because we had the stock and we could deliver quickly. So, and know, why did you have the stock, Oliver? How, how is that? Because you were going to move to the states and you said, "Let's get some stock and we'll be, we'll have it on location." Was it that just confidence? Yeah, Leo, go ahead. Yeah, it was. It was actually more of a OCOG's business decision that we'd switched our business from taking orders from customers manufacturing to order in China and then shipping by air freight into the United States or into Europe and air freight costs, even pre COVID had been rising significantly. So we decided to switch our business to a sea freight model. So we basically took the profits from 2019, reinvested them in inventory and put them on boats at, to our new U S and European warehouses. With the idea being that we take more stock in advance, but make a higher margin per product sold. Um, turned out spectacularly well when uh, it got there in time. But I think, um, yeah, it was, just it was just really a business decision. It was the direction we wanted to go to as well because doing everything out of China had a lot of other issues. We had far more individual air freight shipments, custom shipments, and schools sometimes, you know. People like to buy, you know, buy the stock off the truck. And if we can say it's in a U.S. warehouse or it's in our Rotterdam warehouse and it's there in two days, it's much easier for a school to go ahead than we've got to make the cases for you. We'll put the logo on, we'll package them, we'll put them on a plane, we'll see them in six weeks. Yeah, yeah. So the customers that were calling you were people that already knew you or did you, so that must have been people that knew you, that had already worked with you. So when they calls all over that you got. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, Definitely people we had pre-established relationships with, you know, we, um, one of the big um, ways we sell our products into the K-12 market is through these, what you call these channel partners, these value added resellers that, you know, you're probably familiar with who um, do provide a lot of white glove services, you know, 
pack, you know, unbox the Chromebooks, label the Chromebooks, asset tag them, install the software, get them like ready to be handed out to a student. And so we partner with a lot of these companies because they like to buy cases and add those as, you know, additional, oh, additional ways to re- generate revenue and add peripherals to, to the package and the bundles and whatnot. And so um, they were the ones who were starting to call because they have a lot of customers as well. And so they, they, they knew us. We were in touch with them. And so that was uh, that was how it started, yeah, through the channel. So one thing you guys were doing over this period, especially through LinkedIn, you were doing a lot of promo. So you were going to events, you know, education, ed tech conferences and ed tech events, and you were doing promotions. What were you seeing? What was changing in the way educators and schools were maybe interacting with you compared to previously? What were some, were they being more aggressive? Was there, I'm just curious, what was kind of the, the, the change in the approach the way they were dealing with you or the approach the way we're considering your product? I think one thing that changed is that IT directors and people in similar positions had to be far more aware of procurement than ever before. People never used to ask us questions about how long our cases took to make, how long they took to get delivered or anything like that. And now I think it's a big part. They just would order stuff and the Amazon effect, they'd expect it in a few days or a few weeks, whenever it would get there and that was fine. And then the other thing I think that changed is there's been so much additional funding released that from CARES and for different kinds of structures like that, that they've had to get far more tactical and far more in the weeds again with buying what budget it's coming from, how they can do it. They have to buy on this state. The state funding's coming there. They got to do the cases under. And so we're having much longer conversations, I feel like. People are asking much more detail about the cases, the contracts, the terms. Before COVID, it was really we competed on price and we competed on products. We were trying to have the best product at an equivalent price, and that would win the business. During the COVID frenzy, both of those were completely irrelevant, and we were only competing on lead time. And now that the dust has settled a little bit, we're back to competing on product price and lead time. And you now sort of have the trifecta, which is great. Yeah. And to Leo's point, um, what's changed, you know, we adopted a strategy, you know, there's a lot more skepticism from customers thanks to COVID because a lot of American schools were burned with, you know, unmet promises from manufacturers, from resellers, from channel partners. Yes, the Chromebooks are going to be delivered by school. They don't get them for another seven months. And so what we did to kind of creatively combat this insecurity that also happened is we took a page out of our experience in the face mask industry which believe it or not, we went through a phase in the face mask um, phase of our, you know, that two month crazy stint where we, uh, we realized that the only way you could actually convince someone to buy these face masks is if you could show them a proof of life video where kind of like in a weird, kind of like in one of these like hostage videos where you have like the newspaper to show the date and you have a video in a fact, in a warehouse where someone is wearing a, you know, where someone has the newspaper where they're showing the product in America. It's like, we're in America. This is the product. It's in Florida. Come get it. 
It's available for the next 12 hours. And Nutcase started making proof of life videos of our cases right. where we said, the cases are in America. <laughs> we can come get them. We can ship them to you. You know, this is the date. This is, you know, this is Oliver. I'm here, you know. So we started doing these proof of life videos, you know, for customers and for resellers who are also getting jerked around by a lot of manufacturers and our competitors who were saying, yeah, they're all, you know, they're already in America, but they were still on the boat a month out. And so we, uh, we did a lot of kind of creative marketing when it came to, to kind of, you know, showing that we were real, we had the product, they were in stock, they're here, you know, so. And that's what you built kind of social capital with your customers and they said, oh, not case, they're on time. And that word very likely got out. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So one thing, uh, both of you, obviously, you know, you, you're living, you were starting with international schools. It sounds like you're more focusing on the American market. Are international schools still your customers or less, or is it a different beast? International schools are definitely still our customers. We have a great product for international schools. And one of that case is traditional sales tools that's been very useful is that we provide free logo embossing on all our orders which traditionally public schools didn't care about and international schools love having branding on backpacks, iPad cases, every single thing they can. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that is still staggering and I'm still, I mentioned just, I've already mentioned on this thing, this is just the sheer amount of funding into K-12 education that the U S government passed compared to any other government on the planet is enormous. They passed 12.7 billion in K-12 funding for distance learning in March, 2020. 110 billion at the end of that year. Then they passed a whole separate stage of funding called ECF for connectivity supporting also devices and remote learning later after that. And that schools, every school had almost a bigger budget than international schools did to buy technology. Now we talk a lot of international schools and despite you know potentially a higher cost per pupil, they have technology fees they charge people in, especially in some more remote international schools, they have problems with supply chains and getting the stuff. U.S. schools also started buying at a district level. So whereas you might have an international school, international school of Luxembourg that has 500 students, might buy 500 iPads and 500 cases. U.S. school districts, even in small, I mean, our best account in the United States is the town of Whittier, which is sort of a mid-sized town east of Los Angeles, and they bought 12,000, no, they bought 13,000 of our cases, which is more than every single international school we'd sold to in Europe. And we had about 100 international school accounts. And there was just one town outside LA. And I mean, you have, there's a lot of towns in the United States. And so that was what, you know, helped us wow. focus the, the preliminary attention for the past 18 months. What's amazing is you're just sharing the large, the billions that were invested into the school district. I don't think a lot of people know that about the United States. So one thing, uh, you both are traveling, living, and nomadic. What What is it like to be always kind of on the go and on the edge? You know, I mean, uh, I, Leo, you were saying now you're in Minneapolis. Oliver, you were in Orlando. Now you're in Venice but you kind of alluded to kind of, you know, you rent an Airbnb. So it seems like you're quite nomadic. You have to be pretty nimble and flexible and putting down roots maybe is not something that really 
uh, works for the type of business and where you are. Talk us a bit about how do you juggle that? You know, how are you juggling kind of the life balance and being, you know, kind of entrepreneurial nomads? You know, you don't have the house with the white picket fence and the, the car payments and all those things, but that's because you're so passionate about your business and you're really engaging and you need to be nimble where, okay, now we need to move city because that's where the business is or that's what makes sense. Really like to hear a bit about both of you. How are you juggling kind of the whole well-being and just your own lives? Because, you, you know, you can't be working constantly or maybe you are. Go ahead, Leo. Yeah, well, I think firstly, on the working constantly thing, an unfortunate byproduct of trying to scale in that case is that you are working constantly. In particular, just with the time zones, you know, we do most of our contract manufacturing out of China that starts, then we do sales in Europe and the Middle East that's later in the day, and then we have the United States. So we pretty much have a 24-hour constantly rolling 24-hour window where parts of our business are working. And so as much as we'd like to keep it 8 to 5.30, there's always calls at pretty much all hours up until going to bed to when you first wake up in the morning or fires to put out or things to do on it. As far as the digital nomad piece goes, I absolutely love it. I, a huge part of the appeal for Nutcase and scaling and part of why our international sales have been down recently is that we love going to trade shows. The main way we acquire customers still is in-person trade shows, meeting people, showing them our product line, getting them to teach, getting them to touch the products. And it was an enormous amount of fun and continues to be an enormous amount of fun getting to travel extensively, especially with the fact that both Oliver and myself don't have the white picket fence, the mortgage or anything like by choice that we've never had something that's really tied us down to any specific location for a really long period of time it means we get to take great advantage of the flexibility and the remote work. I mean, we were in Puerto Rico, last year I was in Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, Europe, Poland, just working the whole time and never taking vacations, but having a lot of flexibility to go to any city. We both have, what, one suitcase, only two suitcases that we live out of. And for the time being, you know, the roller coaster, it's cool to be able to say, oh, there's a trade show in Alaska. Okay, we'll fly up to Alaska in you know February and see what's happening there and get a little Airbnb and check it out. And, oh, we're heading to, you know, yeah. Indiana. And there's definitely more fun locations than, than others. But yeah. at least for so, me, it's been a big part of the appeal. And where are you finding your downtime? I mean, are there moments you're like, you know what, I'm going to go and watch a movie or I'm going to go – or is it's interspersed. It's kind of not even defined. Is downtime and on time are kind of mixed together? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, being able to, I think I've learned over the years, just on a personal development, you can't expect to work at your true peak performance every day, all day, 365 days a year. And I used to be able to in my early 20s, honestly, I was able to definitely grind it out in my early 20s when I started working like a machine on all these different businesses. But as I've gotten older, I just turned 29. And I'm realizing that consciously choosing to stop working with the objective of recharging the batteries really does pay enormous dividends when you start work on a Monday. 
And I used to go for, for several years where I would just work weekends without much else going on in my life. Um, and I continued to do that up until, you know, about a year or two ago. And then it started to have negative side effects where you just weren't feeling as motivated. You weren't feeling as focused, as ambitious. You felt more, you know, it's kind of like a no brainer, right? But for someone like myself and, and Leo, you know, you realize that, wait a second, you know, choosing not to work will improve my work on yeah. Monday. And that is uh, something that I would, you know, arguably I probably should have done it sooner. And, uh, you know, with the, you know, with the rhythm of our lives, you know, you can't really, uh, you know, there's always going to be moments where you have to work weekends or you have to kind of, you know, you just, you know, you're traveling, you got nothing else better to do. You just, just work, you know? Um, but for me, I think, you know, I'm learning to try, I'm trying to have a little more balance. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not easy. You're, um, you know, when you, when you do something like this, you have, you know, it's just an obsession. You see the only, the most successful, the only successful entrepreneurs I know are entrepreneurs who are obsessed and, you know, choose to sacrifice certain things in their lifestyles for the business. And, um, you know, that's what I'm choosing to do. And so Leo's chosen to do as well. And, uh, you know, thankfully, do we're you young expect enough. that of your team? So now, and I want to talk a bit about you. You uh, actually, almost a year ago, when I was talking to you, you were just starting to hire some people. Oliver, I remember you were in Orlando, kind of pointing to the room in the back, and there were some people. And now, Leo, you were saying that you have some people in Minneapolis. You moved there because that's where you hired people. How do you, you know, companies talk about well-being, balance, and, you know, play, and all that. You, do you, what culture do you expect from your employees? Now you said you have 10 or 11, uh, you know, you're working, everything's on your shoulders, but what do you expect from them? Is, is it play hard and work hard or how much are you conscious of that when you bring people on board, knowing what you reflected upon? Leo, do you yeah. want to go first? Yeah, definitely. I think firstly, it was something that we struggled with for a little while. You know, obviously, Ollie and I are partners in the business, and we're always going to have a different motivation towards how we want to grow the business compared to, say, new hires might. And I think really, you know, even though it's a huge cliche, I'm a huge fan of work hard, play hard. And we're also big fans in that case if there's no such thing as busy work. You know, and it something just resonates with me, just I remember back when I was working in a coffee shop, when there were no customers, the boss used to make me spray and clean windows. And I clean these windows five times in a day if there were no customers. Just again, just because they had the concept that people just have to be working. And it's one of those weird things that I think has, has existed in the corporate world still is that there's a fear that you're sitting at your desk not working and that's like a bad thing or that's indicative on you. And I think the culture Oliver and I have really tried to put in place is that we want people to work hard. We want people to get their job done. But we want to have realistic expectations on what it takes to get that job done. And if they get the job done, they can go play golf. They can go take time off. It's not 24-7. And it's not insanely unrealistic expectations that require 100 hours a week to achieve. We right. want people that work hard. But we try and really foster an environment. We do quarterly off-sites where we get everyone together and we have fun and we party and we do events and things like that. 
and we have you know, more flexibility with support on goals and extra bonuses and things like that we do. But I think, at least for me as well, you're talking about the hours. I think people are only effective when they're enjoying the work as well. So I'd rather have somebody that works six hours and enjoys the job than somebody that just it's just worked. And so we don't have a fixed hour. We're not telling people, hey, clock in it, put your time card in at 9 a.m. and get out at 5 p.m. We're saying get your job done. And if you get it done faster or you work fewer hours, good for you. You know, it's enjoy it. Don't start doing, you know, pointless other work. I think this uh, the statement about busy work is so true because so often people have those moments of, of creativity and good work, but then there's they're punctured by this busy work where it's just almost existentialist and you're like, why am I doing this? So right. I love that kind of idea of getting rid of the busy work. Now you have hired people and Oliver, I've been watching your Instagram feed or reel where you're not actually putting ads and papers, but you're doing it through social media. Why are you doing it that way? Is that because that's the target audience? Those are the kind of, dispositions and mindsets you're looking for that might be on Instagram or LinkedIn? Well, we're, we're doing both, honestly, you know, as a, um, you know, when we're recruiting, we're trying to go everywhere to attract talent. So leveraging our pretty established personal networks is definitely, um, you know, vital. And that's why we do a lot of this social posting and whatnot. Um, but, you know, a good bulk of it is also, you know, spending money on job searching and recruiting platforms with more targeted focuses of uh, trying to attract professionals and specific geographies, which are much harder to do on, let's say, a spray and pray type of approach on a LinkedIn or an Instagram post. So, yeah, we're, we're doing both. So, Oliver, when you look for somebody or somebody writes to you, I, I mean, do you look at resume? What are, what are your filters? Are you, you know, what kind of filters do you use to say, okay, I'm going to invest some time in listening to this person. So yeah. do you have like a calling system where you look at the resumes or maybe it'd be LinkedIn? I'd just be curious how, what your approach is. I assume it's not the traditional resumes, references, yeah. and interviews. Well, depending on the, um, on the position we're hiring for, um, depending on the position we're hiring for, it, it, it kind of varies. I think at the end of the day, we are, we are always looking for someone with a, a proven track record of success in the function that, you know, in the role that we're hiring for. Um, we're, we're, we're looking for people who can, you know, in a very granular way, describe and detail what their job was, how they achieved success and for like you know thoughtful deep thinking individuals who 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 can really you know communicate their success and what they've done effectively um you know i think also however you know however the adage goes but you know you, you, there's certain things that you you can't really teach people people either have a intrinsic desire to be successful people have a rigorous work ethic through their upbringing, through their childhood, through their DNA, you know, people are either, you know, and, and when you, when you start talking to enough people and you've interviewed enough people, you start to get a sense for, for, um, you know, 
whether people have that spark that you're looking for, that we're looking for, or they don't. Um, sometimes we get it wrong. We've mishired several times already, you know, over the past year, you know, even just this year, this month, we had an issue. How quickly with... do you know that you've mishired? Um, pretty quick, pretty quick. You know, you can't read too much into it. We've made mistakes in the past where we've kept people on for too long and didn't act quickly enough. And as entrepreneurs, you got to learn from your mistakes. If you're not learning, if you're new, if you keep making the same mistakes over and over again, you're not going anywhere. So, um, you know, there's been circumstances where we take action in a moment of, you know, two days where we hire someone and we let someone go within 48 hours that we just know we made a mistake. And a lot of that is based on, you know, a gut feeling and based off the, because the, the issue in, in, in this, in the COVID era, you're not really interviewing people in person anymore. You know, you're interviewing people on zoom calls, right. you're taking a leap of faith. You're, you're flying them out to a certain location and guess what? you can kind of fake how you are on a zoom call than when you're in real life. And when you sit down to do the job versus showing your best self on a camera or on a call, it's, it's, you know, so you, yeah. we have to have some level of, you know, self forgiveness and not take it too hard, harshly when you do a mishire like that. But um, you know, at the end of the day we're we're, you know, we are a sales organization for the most part, you know, we have, uh, our, our, our key to success is developing an incredible team of sales professionals that love the product, are excited about the mission that we're on. And, um, you know, we're, 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 Leo and I are getting better at, at being able to born in candidates. Just to, just to touch on all of this, one thing I think is a little different to us to other things is that, you know, degrees and things like that traditionally for us have very little weighing on how we view somebody's resume. I mean, I can say, right, me personally, I've never looked at someone's GPA that we've ever hired. We've never looked at transcripts. We've always felt referees and their professional experience far outweighs, you know, if someone that's done a similar sort of thing for three months, I think we value higher than a degree in the space for three years, just because I think we found over time that you know, experience and the proven track record for what we want is so much more valuable than just about anything else. And it's so much easier to really figure out. Ageism, are you, are you, this is a, you know, there's a lot going on about ageism where the sense is that, uh, you know, a lot of companies see people like me, I mean, gray hair, you know, uh, do you find that that's something you look at as youth and age or it's that doesn't come into play? Because you're both it's... very young, so very likely you very likely gravitate. And this is no criticism, but maybe there's more commonality with people within your age range than somebody that's 20 years older. I think it's more salaryism, really. I think traditionally Oliver and I, we're a lean startup. We're hiring people with less, much less experience with the idea being that we can because typically the salary ranges for the hires we're trying to look at, people with five to 10 years experience aren't so interested in the offers. But we, we, interview, we interview a lot of people. And so yeah. age isn't something we used to define whether or not people get to the interview process. More often than not, it's, a, it's an entry-level sales position. And most people that are interested in that 
are either people that are changing careers and so getting out of something into sales, in which case age is not a factor, or they're brand new to their careers because the compensation is tied to the fact that it's an entry level position. And retention, is that something you, or is it you're too young to think about retention of employees? We're huge on retention of employees. We invest so much into our employees. It's really important for us to not have employees quitting the company. We've given equity positions to two employees this past year that were top performing employees with our company. We have an employee stock pool that's up for grabs as well. We sponsor professional development events. Oliver's been terrific at getting speakers in all our events. We absolutely do not want employees to quit. I think in the past, I think we, we can say we've had one employee since I've been in that case in the past five years uh, leave of their own volition. So everyone else we've kept and has grown and, and stayed with us. Yeah. No, I mean, our jobs as, as leaders in the company, like I was sharing with a candidate we met yesterday, is to create the opportunities for our employees to grow and develop in the organization as we grow and develop. I think that all the people we've hired and you know ourselves included never want to feel pigeonholed, never want to feel like they're going to get stuck doing something forever. And, you know, we have a very big goal. I mean, we're going to put it on the record. You know, our, our dream, our, our number one goal right now is we're looking to build a hundred million dollar business in the next five to 10 years, which is a very ambitious goal. And we have a lot of room to grow there and a lot of big boots to fill, but but we're, we're trying to build a team that has a long-term view of the opportunity and a long-term career in that case. And we know that great companies are built with great people. And our jobs as leaders in this company are to create opportunities for growth for all of our employees and give everyone a chance to grow and become better versions of themselves, make more money, have more success, have more responsibility. And I think that, you know, if we can do, if we can get that right, Leo and I and, and Ross, and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely um, retain key talent. That's for sure. So we you have to. Want to so this is exciting because you have just announced to our audience what your goal is and you put a, a price tag to it. Is that also diversifying away from cases or that's just with cases? Just with cases. Just with cases right now. Yeah, we don't really, you know, we've, entertained ideas of doing headphones for schools or other, you know, maybe insurance products or other peripherals that are, but, you know, and, you know, and it's kind of, it's a distraction. And I think that if you look at the greatest companies in the world, they were able to get to certain milestones of success by just being world-class at what they do. And I think Focus. You know, I, I struggle with it more than Leo, I think, and he's helps me, stay on track by uh, reminding me that there's plenty of room in the market to build a hundred million dollar business, just selling cases yeah, and just yeah, selling yeah. To, uh, to K-12 as well, because it is yeah. a growing market and a growing industry. Now, so, just before we wrap up here, you focus on K-12. Are you selling to corporates or there's no real need for cases? <laughs> yeah, we have a, you know, we are trying and not trying, we are laser focused on K-12, but we absolutely do have a handful, a book of business and enterprise corporate accounts, as well as healthcare. 
where we have a few different specialized products that are appealing to those industries. Um, Leo closed our biggest deal in healthcare in Europe, which you can talk about for, you know, briefly. Yeah, no, I think um, while we're staying laser focused in Code 12 education, you know, we're trying to build our market share. We definitely do have, for a start, we take all business, of course, but uh, we were chosen at the start of this year um, Apple and the NHS in the United Kingdom did a large-scale rollout deploying iPads into every ambulance in the United Kingdom. And they chose two of our cases to be their chosen uh, cases for the deployment. So we've deployed about six. Yeah, it's a terrific, terrific thing. We've deployed 36,000 cases for our Orbiter and Ultra Waterproof products there. And um, it's been fascinating because we've been so hands-on in the deployment and learning about how they have to manage such a large deployment with training the employee. I mean, I think half of the cases are yet to be deployed, actually. They're still doing professional development and training for the paramedics, doing infection control and disease measures, IDC, and all sorts of things like that. Fascinating. Wow. Well, listen, Oliver and Leo, I know this has been a lot of time, but I so appreciate you sharing your journey and your perspectives. It's just such a rich story to hear. And we will mark my words when you hit the 100 million. Can I ask you that we could have you as our guest when that happens? Maybe even sooner. We could do something. Yeah. If, we yeah. to, if we get to 50 million, we can do a, a call then. Even if you get to 10 million, I'm happy. Exactly. Anyway, well, this well, is our goal this year. 10 million is our goal this year. So hopefully we achieve that one. For quite a few years. I must say you really have so much integrity and humility and you really, that mission and what you believe in can really, it really comes out, your passion. And I think anybody that gets the opportunity to work for you is going to be very fortunate and they're going to learn a lot. So very sweet. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you, John. Likewise. And uh, to have you both here. And I always just love connecting. I get to connect with Oliver a little more and Leo. Uh, it's been nice to connect, but I really, I want to thank you because I think you bring a, 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 a touch of reality to this myth of entrepreneurs and this kind of glorification and kind of the Elon Musk uh, thing. And it's just so, it's so nice to hear the humble journey, but also the passion that you share and just the integrity that you have in the way you approach your customers. I think that's just quite uh, exceptional. So both Thanks. of you, thank you so much. Thanks, John. And uh, yeah, I'm just waiting for those 100 million party. I can't wait. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be dialing in from a nicer place than my you know, <laughs> loft apartment here in downtown Minneapolis. Maybe Sounds good. Chat vibe. Well, listen, all the best with your new endeavors. And I know you both are going to new locations, Oliver in Venice and Leo's now in Minneapolis. And all the best with the head. COVID has not gone away, so that might be good for you. <laughs> well, we're just, you know, going, going with the flow. Cool. That's right. Thank you both. And Thank you. Uh, we'll be in touch. And again, to our audience, Nutcase, uh, you can check the show notes and definitely follow them on Instagram, LinkedIn. And definitely do take some time looking at their website. Uh, there's some great stuff. I do want to mention, actually, for anyone um, who's listening to this, who could be in need of protective cases for Chromebooks or iPads, yeah. if, they, if they go to our website and they 
either send us a message or we have a live chat uh, bought on our website and they just jot, if they just mention that they listen to us on the podcast, we'll be happy to send them a free evaluation sample of one of our cases to test out too. So, um, you've heard that on international school podcast, <laughs> you mentioned international school podcast and you get a free evaluative, uh, example. So thank you, Oliver and Leo. 